Daniel 3 in your Bibles. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. We have been in Ecclesiastes for some time, still there. We'll be picking up in Ecclesiastes 9 next week, but today I'm going to give you the final message of a three-part mini-series, as it were, that we, we focused first in Ecclesiastes 8 for two weeks, and then I'm going kind of topical today. Uh, the title of the message, Still the Enabler of the Better Way, Part 3, Doing It God's Way. We have spoken over the last two weeks about our relationship to government. The first week, uh, the responsibility that we have as citizens to submit to government. Last week, speaking about the government's responsibility as a God-ordained government to protect its people. To protect its people from without, to protect its people from within. Certainly a part of that mandate is the police and the military, that God has given the uh, nation state or nations the privilege, the, the responsibility to protect his people and to make war. That is a right of government to make war. It is not wrong to have a military. It's not wrong to have a police force. And they are not wrong in, in the job that they do. It is a commendable job. The Bible in Romans 13 says that the, the, the government, they are ministers of God for our protection. And so it is not a wrong thing by any means to do so. And we also spoke about the reality that the government's job is to protect its people, not just from without, but from within, to morally protect its people, to give its people safety from evil and to reward good. And that is the mandate of a God-ordained government. But we have spoken throughout about this tension because we are called to submit to government, Something which we as uh, particularly uh, fundamental Baptists or independent uh, fundamental Baptists or just conservative Christians, whatever label you want to take upon yourself, something that we've not always been very high on. Something that we've not been very keen about. However, as we've studied the Bible, we've seen that the government being the greater force under greater responsibility than its citizens, yet calls for us to submit ourselves to the divinely ordained leaders which we have. That when government does not live up to its end of the deal, we are still under our obligation, just like when citizens don't live up to their end of the deal, government is still under its obligation. Today I want to bring this whole idea full circle. I want to get more principled still. It's my hope that through our time together, we will gain a perspective which will undergird not just our relationship with government, but really our relationship to all authorities. I want to give you some some principle that if you can grasp this concept and live on this plane, it will change. I I believe it will change your life. It'll change your relationship, wives with husbands, children with parents, uh, employees with employers, uh citizens to government, but but not only that, I believe that it could truly change our authorities in dramatic ways. I believe that uh, if we can grab this concept, it will change not just the way we react to authority, but the way authorities react to us, that it will change the way your husband reacts to you, that it will change the way your, your parents react to you, that it will change the way your employer reacts to you, that it could very well even change the way government reacts to you. And in order to give us this kind of perspective, 
on the level of true principle, I'd like to study a very special passage of Scripture in Daniel 3. This passage of Scripture has been on my heart now for many months, and I'm so thankful for an opportunity to preach it. First, I'd like to give you some background. Nebuchadnezzar II, it's going to be a little bit of history here. Nebuchadnezzar II, also known as Nebuchadnezzar the Great, was king over the Babylonian Empire beginning in 605 B.C., and he ruled until about 562 B.C. He was a dominant king. He was credited with the building of many wonders. Uh, He was extremely wealthy. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, that was his doing. That was uh, one of the, the elements of his glory. He was also a conqueror. He had defeated the Egyptians, the Scythians, the Syrians. And then finally, and famously... Judah and Jerusalem. It was Nebuchadnezzar that finally dismantled the nation of Judah and removed it from, uh, removed its people into captivity beginning in the first year of his, of his exclusive reign. He had reigned with his father before that a little bit, but the first year of his, his exclusive reign in 605 BC. In what we call the first deportation, the, the deportation of the Jews, the captivity took place in three phases over some 15 years, about 20 years actually. In what we call the first deportation, Nebuchadnezzar took into captivity all of the strong and educated men and noble women. So as he is pulling people out, he first looks at the people and he says, well, I'm going to take the smartest and the best educated first. They, they can benefit me, right? So, so the, the poorer people, the less educated people, if he deports them, they're, they're gonna uh, immediately become a, a more of a burden on society. But these are people that can truly help him. These are people that can benefit him in his kingdom. So he's gonna take them first. He's going to take them and, and assimilate them into his culture, into his government, and, and use their education and use their abilities for his benefit. And so, he begins taking all of these educated princes and nobles. And among these are four young men. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These four young men were, as would have been understood for the day, they were made eunuchs. And they were added to Nebuchadnezzar's court of wise men. They were also given new names for the purpose of removing Jehovah, their old God, from their names in order to assimilate them fully into their new culture. So uh, in, in Jewish culture, as with some other cultures, um, the, the name of their God would be prevalent in their actual names. Well, if you're trying to strip from someone their cultural identity, you've got to take everything. And so they even took their names. Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar. Hananiah was given the name Shadrach. Mishael was given the name Meshach. And Azariah was given the name Abednego. And you perhaps know the story in Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He sees a great image. He's troubled by this because he doesn't know what this image is. He doesn't know what the dream means. He knows it means something, but he has no idea what it means. And so he calls his wise men to interpret the dream. They cannot do it. And Nebuchadnezzar is extremely upset at this. So he commands that every wise man in Babylon be killed. The guy had a bit of a temper on him. But Daniel, of course, he had, I don't know how long he'd been there necessarily, but it it couldn't have been too long. And Daniel, uh, who was not one of the more influential men, he was not one of the men that stood before the king. He says, well, here's the thing. Interpretation is of the Lord. So give me a few days to pray about it. And then we'll give the king 
and interpretation. So he does so, and the Bible says that he and his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, get together and they begin praying to the Lord for an interpretation, and the Lord gives it to Daniel. Daniel is the one that the Lord gifts with this privilege and with this ability. So Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of this dream, and Nebuchadnezzar is extremely pleased, extremely impressed, and he elevates Daniel. He promotes Daniel to high levels as well. He promotes Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. All of them now are in positions of great influence in the nation. But Nebuchadnezzar is not yet a believer. And I say not yet because I believe in Daniel 4, we actually do see him uh, become a believer. There's debate about that. Uh, I, I believe uh, he does. But he's not yet a believer just because God gave him this dream and just because he recognizes God's power. And this sets the stage for what we're going to see in Daniel 3. You have your Bibles there. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold. And the Bible says that it was three score cubits high and six cubits wide. Now, a score is an older English word that means 20. Uh, it's most popularized from the Gettysburg Address, right? Where Abraham Lincoln says four score and seven years ago. Four score meaning four times 20 years or 80 years. So he's saying 87 years ago. Well, that same language is found in our Bibles. And here we see a three-score cubit statue. So that would be 60 cubits. Three times 20 would be 60 cubits. Now the question is, what is a cubit? And again, this has been debated over time, but most people uh, believe that a cubit was, the king's cubit was about 18 inches or one and a half feet. And so at one and a half feet times 60 cubits, this is a 90-foot tall statue. To give you some sort of perspective, the top beam there, that cross beam in our church is about 20 feet. So we're talking four of those plus 10 feet is how tall this statue was. 90 feet tall and then six cubits by 18 inches wide would have been nine feet wide. So not terribly wide, but excessively tall. There's little doubt that Nebuchadnezzar fashioned this image after his dream. And he is looking to actually elevate the image in the dream to God status and, 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 and himself because he was the head of gold in that dream. So himself to God status. That's what he's doing here. So we've got a really big statue, right? Nebuchadnezzar does not see the dream as a manifestation of God's power and glory. He sees the dream as a manifestation of his own power and glory. And he sets up this huge, huge image. What does he do with the image? We continue reading in verse 2 through 7. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the, uh, um, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music. 
Ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth the same shall uh, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So the situation unfolds like this. Nebuchadnezzar calls all of the influential people in the land to come to the dedication ceremony of this statue. We have those today. Typically, it involves cutting a ribbon with a big set of scissors and everybody clapping or something to that sort. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the dedication to go like this. Everybody gets around the statue. The music begins to play and everybody falls down and worships the image of this statue. So that's what he said to do. And then the Bible makes it very clear that when the music played... Everybody did that. But not quite everybody. See, for everybody, it wasn't quite that simple. There was a deeper issue at hand here. And we see that in verses 8 through 12. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sack, but psaltery and dulcimer and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth that he should be cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnaces. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, these men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So there's a twofold issue going on here. First, as is customary in every society, since God chose Israel as his peculiar people, other societies have always hated the Jews and sought for their destruction. We've seen this from the beginning. That, And this is a satanic issue, right? Because Satan knows if he can get between God and his people, if he can destroy the promises of God, then God is not God. And so this has always been the case. They're, the Jews have always had a target on their backs. And we see it here. We can read much earlier in the scriptures. We can read much later in the scriptures. And then if you dig into the history books, uh, this is this is obvious, right? All the way up to World War II and Nazi Germany and beyond. Anti-Semitism is still huge today. It always has been, and really it always will be. The second issue, however, is that the Jews, knowing the Ten Commandments, demand that they never bow down to worship any image of any God, including images of their own God. Jews knew that they could not bow down to this idol. But we also learn something very significant about the king's expectation in regard to worshiping the image. Again, we see that he was going to throw anybody who would not worship into the fiery furnace. To this end, the Chaldeans accused these three men, and these three men were leaders. We see that here, right? We know that God had that that Nebuchadnezzar had elevated them at the time of Daniel and answering uh, this this image or answering this dream. And so now they are leaders in the province of Babylon. That probably made some people pretty upset. The Chaldeans would have been usurped by these Jews. 
So they didn't like these guys, most likely. And then these men did not bow down. And the Chaldeans say, we accuse them of this. So what did the king do? Verses 13 to 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do ye not serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And here's really the point where Nebuchadnezzar went wrong. He says, and who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar gets angry and he calls these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, before him, and he angrily questions them about their unwillingness. Is this true? Have I heard properly? Is this a false accusation? And he says, I'm not even going to ask you for a yes or no on this because lies, you know, I don't know who's, who's true. I don't know who's false. Lies happen. So he says, I'm just going to test you on this. Let's just, let's just have a reset here. You're going to hear the music again. You're going to fall down before the image or you're going to be thrown into the furnace. Whether or not you did it before, whatever. Doesn't matter. Reset button. Now's the time. And then he makes this challenge to God. And he says, if, if this is your deal, that you're not going to fall down because you serve the true and living God, well, I'm going to throw you into the furnace and which God is going to stop me? Which God is going to be able to stand against that? Well, the three men actually do answer. They don't just stay quiet. They actually answer. And they say this in verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said unto the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We don't have to think about this. This isn't even an an issue. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They tell the king, we don't even have to pray about the answer to this one. Have you? Uh, I, I hope you've come to the point in your Christian life where you recognize that if the answer is clear in the word of God, you don't have to seek the Lord's will on it. You don't have to go to the Lord and pray for his will as to whether or not you should sin. Because it's already answered. You don't have to be careful to answer as to whether or not you should and shouldn't do certain things. Go or not go to certain places. Think or not think certain things. Say or not say certain certain things. You don't have to pray about the Lord's will in certain things because it's clear. And if it's clear, then, then, then it's clear. You just need to obey. They say, this is one of those issues that we don't have to think about. We don't have to consider. We don't have to pray about. We're not on the fence about this one. We're not struggling with this decision. We won't bow down to the image. We will not disobey the God of heaven and earth. And if God wills it, he is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. If God wills it, he is able to deliver us from your hand. God can do that. We're not, we're, we're, we're not afraid about whether or not God can do that. But whether he wills it or not, whether he is willing or not, we're not going to bow down. We're going to maintain a faithfulness to the true and living God. It's God's prerogative whether he saves us. We know he can. But whether he saves us or not, we will not bow down. 
to this image. We will serve no other God. Do you see the principle that they're laying down here? Divine authority transcends earthly authority. We talked about this last week. We ought to obey God rather than man. When is the time where we are called to not submit to government, to not submit to those that have rule over us, to not submit to parent or to husband or to employer or to what, to God-ordained authority? Well, the time is when they ask you to do something that is contrary to the word of God. If you have to decide between an earthly authority and a heavenly authority, you choose the heavenly authority every time. And this is the principle they're setting down. They're also setting down that divine power transcends earthly power. So not only is God, not only does he have authority over rulers, over kings, over authorities, but he has power over them. He's bigger than them. And whether God chooses to exercise his authority or his power in any given instance is irrelevant. Because God still demands the loyalty of his creation. And God will reward that loyalty in this world perhaps, but most certainly in the world to come. In other words, even if it doesn't make sense to me to obey God at the expense of earthly authorities, even if it doesn't make sense to me, even if pragmatically speaking, I feel like it's a better solution to go along with an authority when what they're doing is contrary to the word of God or what they're asking me to do is contrary to the word of God. God's bigger than that. And if I do it God's way, there's a blessing to be had. That's the principle that we're beginning to establish here. Well, a declaration like the one Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just made to a a, a narcissist like Nebuchadnezzar would not have gone over well. And in fact, it didn't go over well. Verses 19 through 23. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage, that means his face, was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he was angry before, but he was kind of, he was angry in kind of the typical way he got angry. Just, uh, I've heard something I don't like, and now I need to take care of it. This made him furious. Have you you've seen someone when their face literally changes because they get angry, and it gets all red, and their veins pop out, and, and it looks like they're just going to... You know, their head's going to pop off. That's what happened here. He got really, really angry. This is defiance. This is not just, well, you didn't bow down to the image. This is looking into the eyes of the king and saying, no, my God is bigger than you. My God is bigger than your plans. He can take care of it any way he wants. If we have to die, we have to die. You are not going to get what you want out of me. And this made him very angry. The Bible says, therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace one seven times more than it was wont to be heated. And he commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats and their hosen and their hats and their other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There we go. Um, Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flames of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. So Nebuchadnezzar is very angry. And in his anger, he says, I know that the furnace gets heated to this temperature. 
I want you to make it seven times hotter. Now, we know that the, the, the number seven in the Bible is a important number, right? It's the number of completion or the number of perfection. And that, that, that comes up several times where we read something like this and the question is, did he actually literally ask for it seven times hotter or did he simply say, make that thing as hot as it can get? We don't know. It could be either way. One way or the other, however, what he did is he, he put it significantly higher than it's normal operating temperature. He says, I want this furnace as hot as it can go. Once again, I don't quite understand that because if you want them to suffer, making it that hot is not necessarily going to be the way to do that. It's probably going to make their death quicker. But one way or another, he's angry. He's not thinking. He, he tells the strongest men in his army, bind them and throw them in. So hot is the fire that when the men get close enough to be able to throw those three men in, the men who threw them in were killed by the heat that was radiating out of the furnace. It was so hot that th- those three men, the Bible says the strongest men in his military, so he lost some good men that day, were killed as well as they were trying to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. But then something amazing happens. Beginning in verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, astonished. And he rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. Yeah, you know, we saw it, you saw it, everyone saw it. Three men thrown in. There's... Three dead men to prove it. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes governors and captains and the king's counselors being gathered together saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power nor was an hair of their head singed neither were their coats changed nor the smell of fire had passed on them grasp with me the significance of this event here three men are thrown in the men who held them and threw through them in are dead because the heat of the fire just radiating out of the furnace was so hot. Nebuchadnezzar now looks into the furnace, presumably a window uh, in the furnace or presumably a, a door in the, in the front, and he sees not three men, but four men. And these men are not writhing in pain. These men are walking around, not hurt at all, speaking to each other having a conversation in the flames. And he says, the fourth man looks, the king says, like the son of God in appearance. Uh, what this means in full, we do not know. Uh, newer translations don't actually even put son of God. They put a son of the gods or a children of the gods, um, which is um, a fine literal translation, but this is a good translation as well and far more accurately depicts what's actually happening here, right? which is that the second, the divine second person of the Trinity met them there in the fire and was speaking with them, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I would have loved to have heard that conversation. I'm sure it would have been fascinating. So the king sees these four men 
And he's just wondering if he's crazy, right? So he's asking his counselors. We threw three men in, right? Yes, three men fell in. Did one of the, uh, did one of the men who, who carried them up there throw in two? No, we have three dead men up top. Those are the mighty men that threw them in. There's no one else that fell in. Okay. Well, do I see four men? Do you see four men? Yes, we see four men too. Uh, does it look like they're burning? No, no, it does not look like they're burning. Hmm. So he just wants to make sure he's not crazy here. He's asking his counselors. And then he says, well, let's call him out. So he calls out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fourth man does not come out. Right? Uh, he, he appears and he, he's gone. And, and uh, that is consistent with what we know of the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. But the three men come out, recognizing that the God who they serve, who he now calls them servants of the true God. The Most High God is what he calls them. Servants of the Most High God come out. He realized that the God that they serve just did defy him and was able to deliver them from his hand. And he calls them out of the furnace. He acknowledges them to be the servants of the Most High God. And they come out of the furnace, but not only did they come out of the furnace not having been burned, but they came out with their hair not having been singed. And you know how quickly hair burns. Some days when I'm working in my fire pit, I'll come out and my, all my arm hairs will at least be curled, if not gone. So hair burns quick and easy. Their hair was not burned. Their clothes were not burned. But not only that, but again, not even the smell of fire on their clothing. If you've ever sat by a campfire for a few minutes, you walk in and you smell that campfire on your clothes. That smoke gets in there and you've got to wash it before that smoke will leave. Or not wash it so you can smell smoke for the next few days because it's a great smell, right? Smell campfire next time you wear it. One way or another, though, you're going to smell it on that shirt, on that sweater, on whatever it is, on that jacket. Nothing. And it wasn't just the king that saw this. The Bible says that he, they came out before their princes and their counselors and, and their governors and their captains. It was literally as if they had never been in contact with the fire at all. The fire truly had no power over them in any measurable or substantial way. Well, let's read how the story ends and then we've got to talk about it. Verses 28 to 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said... Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I want to, you to take note of what we read in that first, the first bit of that phrase. Not only did Nebuchadnezzar say that God saved them, but he says here, he has sent his angel and delivered the servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word. He's changed the way I think. He's changed the way I'm going to act. He has changed what I am going to expect. Now, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is still not a servant of the true God. He does not acknowledge God, Jehovah God, to be the only God. That's going to come in Daniel 4. 
Nebuchadnezzar has to be humbled one more time before he'll get to that point. But at this point, he at least acknowledges God to be God. After he sees the vision in Daniel 2, he acknowledges there to be a God. That's it. In this one, he acknowledges that God has power over him. In the next chapter, he'll acknowledge that God is the only God. What we see here, far from being destroyed, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted to in the province of Babylon. Far from being martyrs for the faith, these three young men became God's greatest missionaries as they used simply their obedience to the word of God to be a living testimony of the existence and the power of that God. What if they had just kept their heads down and their mouths shut? What if they had said, okay, he's asking us to bow down, no big deal, we'll just do it, our heart won't be in it, we'll just bow down to the dumb image, we'll be done with it, and then that way we can at least live and continue to influence others for God. They could have said that, couldn't they? They could have very pragmatically said, okay, I know it's not best, I know it's not ideal, but we'll just, we'll just kind of allow this to slide, we'll bow down to the image, and by bowing down to the image, it'll keep us alive, we can do more alive than dead. They could have said that. Had they just been rebellious to the king, kind of, under the radar, telling people, yeah, you shouldn't be bowing down to idols. Well, yeah, I know I did, but, but you know, that's not how it's supposed to work. Had they been that way, pragmatically, maybe we could influence things from the inside out. But notice this as well. Had they been a characteristically rebellious group? Had Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael been characteristically rebellious? In other words, had this been a common trend? Well, there's the Jews again, not bowing down, just like they keep talking against the king, just like they keep doing things their own way, just like they keep ignoring the king's commands because he's not their king, because he's not Jewish. Had they been characteristically rebellious, they would have missed an opportunity to show the distinction between their rebellion for God's sake and their rebellion for pride's sake. Wouldn't they? But because they were characteristically submissive, but in this case they could not because it was offending the word of God. So they stood against the king and the Lord delivered them. There was impact. Had they lacked the faith to trust in God, the whole empire would have spiritually suffered. And it is upon this premise that I would like for us to consider three questions of application and hope to relate these points to what we've been learning over the past two weeks in Ecclesiastes 8. Say, Pastor, I missed one. I missed both of those messages. They are online. I encourage you to go listen to them. Question number one. Do you have the faith to stand for God's word when opposed by human authority? This is, again, if I can say it this way, in some ways this is the easy one. This is the most natural application to the text before us. These three young men were given a choice to obey the king or to obey God. And their choices, these two choices were in conflict one with another. We have been spoiled in these United States of America and in Western culture where for a large portion of our history, these two have not necessarily been in conflict. We have been able to serve God and obey our government simultaneously. That's changing. And it's changing rapidly to where we are going to have to come to decisions between whether or not we serve the true and living God or whether or not we obey our authorities. 
for some of us, we've had to deal with that with our husband or with our parents or with an employer for a long time now. And this is not necessarily a, a new thing in the smaller contexts. We spoke two weeks ago about the obligation which we have to submit to our authorities. That when the expectations of an earthly influence and an authority conflict, however, with the expectations of our heavenly authority, our first and primary duty is to obey God rather than men. And this lesson is seen quite clear in Daniel 3, is it not? But it's also manifest very clearly in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5, being filled with the Holy Ghost following the days of Pentecost, the apostles were doing great wonders in the temple. They were preaching in the temple area. At the Jewish temple, they would go and they would continue to preach Christ. And they were doing great signs and they were doing great wonders and they were doing great miracles. And the high priest called for the apostles to be arrested and thrown in prison for these deeds. And so they were thrown in prison. That evening, after they were thrown in prison, the Bible says the angel of the Lord came and opened the prison and let them out. And the next day they were found again in the temple preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the high priest says, did we let them out? No. Did anyone let them out? No. Okay, that's really weird. Go arrest them again. Uh, So they didn't get the hint that God is doing something special here. So they go to have them arrested again. And they're brought before the high priest this time instead of just thrown in jail. And we pick up our account in Acts chapter 5 verse 27 where we read this. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did not we strike command you that ye should not teach in this name and behold ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us you're telling the people that the Jews have slain him well uh, remember on the day you said his blood be upon us <laughs> so you know it's pretty valid but one way or another you're, you're trying to blame us for this and on top of that you are filling Jerusalem with his doctrine we continue then Peter And the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be the prince and savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. We ought to obey God rather than men. We're not rebels, Peter says. We're not seeking insurrection. This is not us trying to undermine the authority of our leaders. We're not violent men raising up with the sword to overthrow Rome or to overthrow the Sanhedrin. They were not resistant to Jewish or Roman authority. But when their earthly authorities told them, to do something that came in conflict with their divine mandate, with their heavenly authority, they have to obey God every time. Because God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this is the other side of that great coin. That if God ordaining government means that we are called to submit to said government, God ordaining government also means that God stands above government. And that where government conflicts with God, God wins in our lives. God must win. So it is with you and I today. We are called to submit to government. Jesus Christ explicitly commands us to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, to pay our taxes. The Bible explicitly commands us to honor the king, to honor our rulers. 
We are called to submit to parents, aren't we, children? First, to obey until such time as you leave your father and mother and cleave unto your wife and you create a new family unit and then always to honor. Wives are called by God to submit to husbands. Called by God to align your will and vision with that of your husband. To be his helpmeet. Employees are called by God to submit to employers. The master-slave relationship we see in Colossians, Ephesians. Not only to the good and gentle, First Peter says, but also to the froward, also to the bad. But on the authority of God's word, in any context, your obedience to earthly authorities must not go past the point where they ask you to disobey God. We will obey government. But if our government tells us that we cannot do what God has called us to do, we ought to obey God rather than men. If the government tells us we cannot assemble, when the Bible says to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we're going to assemble. When the government tells us we cannot share or read the word of God, when the Bible says to do so, we're going to share and read the word of God. And why does this take such faith? Well, because disobedience brings with it natural consequences, doesn't it? Disobedience to government might mean that you and I find ourselves being opposed by the authorities of the land. Throughout history, in the name of Christ, Christian martyrs have been imprisoned, they've been beaten, they've been scorned, they've been hated, and they've been killed because they refuse to obey man and disobey God. And while such evils do not yet, as I've mentioned, thank God, systematically plague our land, those who see with eyes that are open must recognize that the days might be coming, might, should God not bring revival where the truth of God will be counted as hate speech, where obedience to God's methods will be considered wrong, where sharing the gospel will be punished, where meeting together will be seen as a threat. It's happened throughout church history. It's happening around the world today. It's happening in Syria. It's happening in China. It's happening in North Korea. It's happening in many other places around the world as well. So let us not think it doesn't. And on the day when we are called to stand. Now you may be listening in fear and thinking, I don't know if I can on that day. May I encourage you not to worry about that? The question is not, will you have the faith to stand in that day? The question is rather, do you have the faith to stand today? Let me tell you why. God doesn't give us grace for tomorrow's problems today, does he? Tomorrow's problems come with tomorrow's grace. Today's problems come with today's grace. Do you and I have the faith to do what God has asked us to do today? That's going to give you a good idea of of tomorrow. If you have the faith to say, I'm on God's side today, then you can trust that God will give you the grace to be on his side tomorrow when the days get harder. And if you do follow the Lord today, then rest in this, that that faith will see you through. Jesus taught his disciples about this when he was speaking to his, his inner 12. He says, Behold, I send you forth, Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 20. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, Take no thought how or what ye shall speak. Don't worry about that. 
For it shall be given you in the same hour when you shall speak, what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. What will I do in that day? In that day when people call me to reject God and to follow error. To reject God for the sake of my own health or for the sake of my own safety. Will I have the faith? Will I even know where to draw the line between submission and disobedience? Because some of these lines are gray areas, aren't they? I speak with people and we talk about submission to government and we've talked about it a little bit over the past couple of weeks. The fact that the Constitution and Bill of Rights in a manner of speaking gives us legal right to overthrow our government, doesn't it? What do you do there when you have a legal right to do something? So are you submitting to government? Are you not submitting to government when you are exercising your legal rights given you by a government that has been usurped by another? These are gray areas. I get that. But on the authority of God's word, you will know when the day comes what is right. What God wants of you, if you will be loyal to the principles. And this is why I encouraged you last week, the week before, to found yourself on the principle that I will submit to government until government asks me to do something that God says no. Not that doesn't make sense to me, not that I can't wrap my head around ideologically or philosophically, but but until until... It's asking me to do something that the Word of God says I may not do. Submit. And as I've mentioned, the Bible comes when we adopt a bipolar Christianity that believes we can demand a righteous government without being a righteous people. That demand that our government hold up its end without holding up our end. The problem comes when we think we can solve all the problems of our authorities by force and then resent our authority when our authorities try to use the same tactic. The problem comes when we say, okay, God, we'll say we trust you when our authorities are in line, but when the rubber meets the road, we're going to take things into our own hands and do things our way. On the day when our human authorities give us no other human option but to relent or to suffer, do you have the faith to say, I ought to please God rather than men regardless of the consequences? We must hasten on. Question number two. First, do you have the faith to stand for God's word when opposed by human authority? Second, and this one might even take more for some people. Do you have the faith to stand for God's word when God's word asks you to submit to human authority? If you have the faith to stand in the day of persecution, my next question is, do you have the faith to say, I may not necessarily have the grace for it today, but when the time comes that I am asked to choose between earthly and heavenly authorities, I'll choose my heavenly authority regardless of the consequence. Then do you have enough faith to say, even if I don't understand or agree, even if they are godly people, even if they are unreasonable or unkind, when the time comes that I am asked to validate my faith in God, validate my faith in my heavenly authority by obeying my earthly authorities, by setting a good testimony and example so that they have no evil thing to say of me. And then the contrast between when I rebel for God's reasons and when I would rebel for other reasons can be so clearly set because I obey my government until such time as they cross a line. And that line is God's word. Do you have the faith to choose to submit regardless of the consequences? Even if I don't agree with my parents, if they aren't asking me to disobey, I ought to submit, right? That's what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say children obey your parents, asterisk footnote, only if they're godly and are telling you to do something that that you like. Or only if their advice is sound. 
Children, obey your parents in the Lord for God's sake, for this is right. I don't, even if I don't agree with, 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 with my employer, if he isn't asking me to disobey God, will I submit, as the Bible tells me? Ladies, even if you don't agree with your husband, if he's not asking you to disobey the word of God, will you submit as the word of God tells you? Citizen, even if we don't agree with our government, if they're not asking me to disobey the word of God, can I submit? Does that offend my sensibilities? It does. Absolutely. Do I not like what I'm preaching? I don't. I said that two weeks ago too. I don't like this stuff. I don't like to to tell myself this. I like the idea of stockpiling my weapons and then telling the government, come get me. I like that. That sounds good to me. Let's, Let's do that. But is that what the Bible says? Is that what the Bible says? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have done that, right? They could have stored up their weapons, and on the day that 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 they were told that that they feel like Nebuchadnezzar usurped some authority, they could have barred themselves in and said, "Come get us. We're going to take as many of you out as we can." But they were characteristically submissive men who had a line, and that line was was the word of God. And when that line was crossed, they came and they respectfully said, "We cannot do this, and we will not do this." And we will suffer the consequences that our ordained authorities have called on us to suffer for God's sake. Didn't they? That's what they did. I don't like it, but you know, it turned out pretty well for them, but not just for them. Because there have been plenty of martyrs in history that it didn't turn out well for physically, right? But you know who, who else it really turned out well for? The kingdom and empire of Babylon, whose king was on a journey to faith. as we read in Daniel 4. Yes, this offends our sensibilities. Yes, this tramples on our rights. Yes, we have to swallow our pride. Yes, we have to do things we might not otherwise do. But if God has ordained these authorities, then we have a responsibility, not to them, but to the God that has ordained them. And we need to draw some lines. Where are those lines? I I can't tell you all of that, right? I can't. I'm not going to. If I did, we probably wouldn't have anyone here. I have my lines that I draw. I've drawn my lines. And those lines might need to change at some point. But we need to draw those lines. You will not answer to God for the way your authorities treat you. But you will answer for how you respond. Wives, you've been told this before. Children, you've been told this before. It's not your job to nag and berate and argue with and rebel against your authorities for the sake of your rights. They will answer to God for how they treat you. You will answer to God for how you submit to them. That is your role. And by the way, this doesn't mean you have no recourse, right? If a wife is being beaten by her husband, she is under no obligation just to take it. If the family is in a church, then she can appeal to pastoral authority for discipline because that pastor has submitted himself to the discipline of the church. If she is a citizen, then she can rightly appeal to government because the government's job is to punish evil and to reward good. So she can rightly appeal to the government to protect her. She can do that because her husband is also a citizen, which means he has obligations to to law. That's not a wrong thing. This is biblical. No woman woman should feel obligated to submit to physical, emotional, or spiritual abuse in the name of submission. The same with children. If you are a child in the church, then you have, you can appeal to your pastor when your 
parental authority is stepping outside its bounds. You have that right. So appeal. Appeal to your pastor. Go, come to me. Tell me what's going on. If your parent is under the authority of this church, then your parent is under, to a certain degree, within reason, my authority. There is, there, there is a opportunity for you there. I want to be a part of helping you, not just your parents. I want to be a part of helping you. Yes, you're to submit. Yes, you're to obey. But look, you have, your, your parents are under authorities too. And you can appeal to those authorities. Respectfully, properly, but do it. Your parents are also under the authority of government, whose responsibility it is to protect from evil, to protect, to, to reward good. No child should feel obligated to submit to physical, emotional, or spiritual abuse in the name of submission. Now, if you're, if you appeal and those authorities will do nothing left and all you have is God, well then you have to just leave it with God. You have to do that. But you have options. Well, government leaders stand before God and they will answer one day as well. We know that. Did they give me the freedoms and protection required for me to serve God as the Bible tells me? That's government's job. But that's not my problem. That's between them and God. I will stand before God and answer for whether I did right before my God-ordained authorities. Government and then God. God first, of course. Now, in light of what I've just said, I want to ask one final point, or ask one final question. First, do you have the faith to stand for God's word when opposed by human authority? Second, do you have the faith to stand for God's word when it asks you to submit to human authority? Third, do you have the faith to believe if you do things God's way, God can take care of the rest? This is where the principle comes in. This is where you've really got to understand this concept if you want to elevate the principle. Do you believe that if you do it God's way and you have to take a few lumps today, that it can be better in the long run? That, that, that the overall situation can be better by you taking your lumps today through submission. But pastor, if I submit to government, tyranny will be the result. You know, that, that is possible, isn't it? As a matter of fact, we've not yet seen in history a government that has not descended into tyranny. So if, if history is our teacher, then it's going to happen if the Lord tarries. But here's the hard question. Can you see the forest through the trees? Can you see the big picture enough to believe that if I yield my rights today, trust the Lord today, submit to government in all avenues where government is not asking me to go outside of the divine commands of God's word, as we have been told, submit to parents when they, when they have not asked me to go outside the commands of God's word, submit to boss, submit to husband, uh, to the degree that they have not asked me to go outside of the divine commands of God's word. Can I trust that if I do that, even if it seems worse for me today or worse for our society today, even if it seems like we're going to take a step backwards today, that by submitting and by doing what's right in the avenues that are that, that I ought, and then only stand, taking a stand in the avenues that God has called me to take a stand, can I trust that God is big enough to, to, to make beauty for ashes? To make something beautiful come out of that? Can I trust that if I don't rebel against my government simply for their wrongdoings that offend my sensibilities, that God can do a better job of disciplining that government and bringing about that which he wants than I can? And I fear that Christians have gotten this all wrong today. 
And I fear that we are so busy trying to make government be what we think it should be that we are going outside of the mandate that God has given us through which to do it. That we are a rebellious lot and we are a pragmatic lot and we're willing to compromise ourselves on principle for the sake of temporary expediency. And folks, I'm concerned. And you know that I stand up here every week and I give you the word of God and then I give you these applications and these applications are mine and you don't have to listen to them. You listen to the word of God, not to me, right? I'm, I'm the teacher. You have to do what you will do with the word of God through the Holy Spirit, knowing that one day you'll stand before God and answer, not to me, but to him. And I can be wrong. We've established that already this morning. So that, that, that's okay. But let's think about this. Can I trust that if I don't nag my husband for his flaws, that God can do a better job of changing my husband's heart than I can. And bless me more in the latter end. Can I trust that if I don't rebel against my parents for their short-sightedness or overprotectedness because they're not with the times, whatever it might be, that God can do a better job of changing the hearts of my parents than I can and bless me more in the latter end. Do you know that some of the biggest blessings in my life I attribute to me submitting to decisions that, uh, of my parents that I feel were wrong or not best? But I submitted and I can point to things in my life that I can say, I believe that came directly out of it and it was better in the latter end. Can I trust that if I, I, I identify God's design and I do it God's way, that God can and will do more with that than if I try to do it my own way? I know this is not easy, but this is why faith is called a narrow road. Only eternity will tell us how many men and women will be in heaven because rather than fight against our authorities, Christians were willing to take their lumps. Only heaven will tell us how many Christians will be in heaven, how many people will be in heaven because the martyr went to the gallows or went to the stake to be burned rather than to fight. Only eternity will tell us how many men and women will be in heaven because rather than fight the government, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah chose to stand for what was right and to obey God rather than men, to do it God's way. They didn't stage a coup. They didn't try to subvert the government and put Daniel in charge. You know, they probably could have done that. Daniel was a pretty powerful man at that point. Let's just stage a coup and make Daniel the king. As a matter of fact, even when Nebuchadnezzar went went crazy... Somebody held his position as king until he came back. I wouldn't be surprised if it was Daniel. That's just me. Somebody held his position. Nobody took over. He he stepped right back into his kingship after he got his sanity back. Only eternity will show us how many people came to faith because of what they saw in those four men in their time in Babylon. They took a stand. They were rewarded not only with deliverance from the immediate wrath of the king, but also a testimony that very well might have changed the eternal destiny of countless thousands. Who will know if your faith and willingness to submit to the authorities in your life will change lives forever? We can't know, but I can tell you this. God's way is always the best way. And if you do it God's way, there will be better circumstances on the latter end. Maybe not always for you, right? There are plenty of martyrs that went to death with this philosophy. But how many people were brought to Christ through their testimony? Who has the eyes of faith to see long term and wonder 
if entire nations might rise and fall based upon the decisions of God's people from generation to generation, either to do it God's way or to take things into their own hands. Who knows if the great revivals of the 19th century were not carried on the backs of religious rebels, but rather men and women who knew how to do things God's way. Who knows what God could do in this world if only his church would have the faith to quit trying to command our own destiny and start obeying the word of God in honesty and integrity. Who knows what might happen in families if husbands begin submitting to God and wives begin submitting to husbands and children begin submitting to parents as God has designed. Who knows what might happen in workplaces if Christians began submitting to their employers Who knows what might happen in nations of this world if Christians stop taking politics into their own hands, if we as Americans Americans quit trying to pragmatically alter our government through our own means and start becoming unimpeachable citizens until the day that our authorities ask us to disobey the word of God and then take the stand that God has called us to take. And on the day that we stand, to do so in a manner that is befitting the honor that is due unto the king just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who didn't yell at the king or berate the king or lecture the king, but simply said, no, sir, this is a command we cannot obey. If we would stop fighting our own divine nature through our demands for personal rights and comfort, if we would take the road of faith rather than the road of ease, what could God do with us? What could God do with you, wife, child, employee, citizen, What could God do with us Christians? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did it God's way. It wasn't the way that made sense. Why die? Why not just kneel? Why not just get it over with? Spare your life. Be an influence. Win them one at a time. Just do what the government asks. Then work around the system. Stay in your position of power so you can continue to influence others. But rather, they had enough faith to believe that if they didn't compromise their honor to the king or to the house of God, that they could trust God with the rest. And whether they would have died on that day or whether as it took place, they were delivered, they were ready to obey. And they did. And the entire empire was placed in a different path because of it. Excuse me, going the wrong way here. So, as we close, these three questions... Do you have the faith to stand for God's word when opposed by human authority? Do you have the faith to stand for God's word when it asks you to submit to human authority? Do you have the faith to believe if you do things God's way, God can take care of the rest? This has been a hard topic. These are not fun messages to preach, believe me. They're not fun messages to preach because I know that I, no matter which way I go with it, somebody will not be happy with what I say. That's unfortunate. But... I believe God's word is very clear. The role of government and the role that we play as citizens. Just like it's clear about the role in the family, just like it's clear about the role in society, there is a clarity here. So much so that as we talked about at the beginning, there, there, there needs to be a point where we don't even pray about this, where we know what we're going to do. Because God's word is very clear. There are gray areas. But outside of those, can you have a loyalty to the principle that you are under God-ordained authorities and you're going to submit to them and that God can do the rest if only we'll allow Him.